1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was all of the federal election polls show it's still a tight race between the liberals and conservatives. Even a Friday nanos poll, which was taken after Justin Trudeau's apology for wearing blackface and brownface decades ago. Our Zoomer primary at zoomervote.ca is showing much the same. Two days before the Trudeau Brown and Blackface scandal erupted, Libby Snymer was joined by Peter Muggridge, a senior editor of Zoomer magazine, and David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and demographic guru, this past Monday to see how Zoomer voters
2: are feeling. First of all, they're very stable. From week to week, we haven't seen any big landslides in either direction yet, but the national polls, the averages of of all the polls, are essentially a tie between the conservatives and liberals, around 34%, and the NDP slightly ahead of the Greens, which is not reflected in, in our numbers.
3: We saw the first debate last week, which Justin Trudeau decided not to participate in. And the consensus seemed to be whether you agree with him or not, Jugmeet Singh looked good in the debate. He, uh, of course, had a very low bar to start from (laughs) where he really had made almost no impression uh, since he's become the NDP leader. And he came out strong and he looked smart. And that certainly does not show in the Zoomer vote.
4: I think we're going to see NDP start climbing now and green start dipping because the green Elizabeth May's economic plan seemed uh, very unrealistic. Uh, Universal income for everyone, free tuition, um, expanded health care, drug plan. And on top of that, getting rid of the fossil fuels sector, all the jobs and the revenue that come with it and balance the budget in five years. It's just not going to happen and I think we've given Greens a pass so far, and we're gonna we're gonna see them slip and NDP climb.
3: Do you still see Elizabeth May as a one issue candidate?
2: I, I think that Peter's right in that she's certainly going to be scrutinized more heavily mm-hmm. on the points that Peter raised. But I, I'm I'm looking at the uh, debate in another way. It, we have a specific poll about the debate on everything Zoomer. It's not part of our Zoomer main Zoomer primary poll. But it, it asked people who won the debate, and uh, it even let you vote for Justin Trudeau. And it said in brackets, Justin Trudeau won by not being there. And forty-seven percent sheer, thirty-one Trudeau, eleven nine May, twelve percent, and only nine point five for Singh. So I'm beginning to wonder, were you know, a month is he away. just too
4: late to the game? Do you think? Well, or?
2: I'm also wondering, is there a divergence? Between the way the Zoomers are looking at this, the Liberals are slightly stronger than they are uh, national in the national consolidated polls. And the uh, Greens persist in outperforming the NDP, which is definitely not happening. Both parties are far behind. So I'm wondering whether our audience has a unique uh, mm. filter on this that is not shared by the other age groups because you're seeing these Numbers week after week, uh, and we're not—we're slightly out of alignment, slightly with the the national. Well, picture.
3: it's very possible. I mean, you would think that different demographics have different agendas, and I almost get the sense that you know, older people are naturally conservative, if you will, that that this demo is perhaps being taken for granted so far and everybody's going after millennials. Uh, am I wrong in that, David?
2: I think you're completely correct in that. And uh, we showed in our analysis of the Harper-Trudeau election that even a slight loss of support among the older voters translates into more votes lost For the conservatives, they can afford to take a bit of a beating, actually, among the younger voters, because remember, everybody listening, our group, uh, the Zoomer group, is six out of every 10 ballots cast. So while everybody's falling all over themselves for the millennial vote, I'm speaking statistically, (laughs) not not morally, (laughs) but while everybody's falling all over themselves for the millennial vote, the election will be decided by the Zoomers.
3: Guys, what are we looking for going into the next week of the Zoomer primary?
4: Well, um, you can vote at zoomervote.ca. It's been very successful so far, and and we'd like to see it continue.
3: I think that maybe when the politicians see something like the Zoomer vote and they see, uh aha, it is different than all the aggregated polls They might sit up and take notice saying, you know what, these are the people that vote, let's listen up.
2: I'd be worried if I was the Conservatives because – They haven't budged in our poll and they have to budge (laughs) if they're going to win. Yeah. So uh, somebody should be calling us uh, nervously saying what's going on uh, in your world.
3: (laughs) No, so far they don't have time for us. Uh, So um, mm.
2: they will. They'll make it.
3: They'll yeah. make time yeah. for us? Well, we'll see. They uh, they'll know, make they time know, for us or they won't do that well.
2: They, he knows where all the appliances plug into the kitchen and store in a way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and he'll be back <laughs> there again. So, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's a topic we touch on often here on Fight Back, and CARP, A New Vision of Aging, believes it should be an election issue. Help for caregivers. More than 8 million Canadians are informal caregivers to family and friends. More than a million of them are themselves over 65, and they save our health care system $25 billion a year. To discuss, Libby was joined by caregivers Salamenta and Karen Lead, along with CARP's chief policy officer, Marissa Lennox, who says those numbers should add up to an election issue.
5: You know, it wasn't too long ago that we saw that release from Stats Canada that said one in four people over 30 are caregivers. And then we started to hear from more and more of our members about some of the struggles that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Everything from financial struggles to actually physical and emotional struggles just by being a caregiver. Now, we know that the numbers are some 8 million people that are unpaid. I mean, these are people that some some of them are working, some of them have had to quit their jobs in order to care for a loved one. They saved the system, as you said, $25 billion. by some estimates. One estimate coming out of the University of Alberta, Janet Fast, $66 billion. So we know they save the health system a lot of money, and we know that supports for caregivers are woefully inadequate. I've not heard from one of the leading candidates in this election about what they're going to do to support these individuals, so we're calling on everyone to say what they're going to do.
3: Salamanta, you're a caregiver. Tell me about your life. This is a full-time thing for you, right?
5: Yes. I started caregiving
6: 35 years ago with our son, who had disabilities, and so we were advocating for him in the school system. And I now can tell you that advocating for children is a lot sexier than advocating for elderly people. And the kinds of life that many of us as caregivers have, when we're looking after our aging parents, and even our aging children, there are many advocates like me who have 40-year-olds with a disability, living at home with them, worrying day and night about what's going to happen to them when they kick the bucket. So it's not a very pleasant life. Uh, The worst of it is that you're absolutely powerless and hopeless to deal with the really difficult existential issues. Somebody's dying or terminally ill, and there's nothing you or I or government can do really and truly to help them weather that storm. You've got to live through it and hope, hopefully survive. But there's a lot that we can do to make their lives easier. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing it. Karen, what's your situation?
7: My mom was diagnosed at the age of 57. And I recently had a newborn. So she actually, at the time my parents were living in Trinidad, so she came up to help me because she was a registered nurse. And um, I just noticed there were a lot of inconsistencies with her helping me. And I said, okay, let's go to the doctor because maybe I thought it was menopause. And then uh, the doctor gave her a mini mental exam and said, uh, she has Alzheimer's and your oh life is going to change. Mm-hmm.
3: That's early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. So these things are very, very difficult on just about every level. But what you're asking for, I think, is is pretty modest. Mm. Oh, yeah. So the ask is make it a refundable tax credit just to put a little bit of cash in your pocket. Any response from the politicians so far?
5: The campaign launched today, so we'll have to wait to see. But we're hopeful and, and optimistic because this touches so many people across the country. One in four over the age of 30 are caring for a loved one unpaid. One in three expect to in the future.
3: Sal, what would you
6: like to leave us with? I'd like to see a, a much more expanded definition of what a caregiver is. Mm-hmm. Because the spectrum is extremely wide. We're not just talking about looking after young people or old people people who are very sick and dying. We're also talking about looking after young adults and even older adults and all kinds of supports that should be available to people who care for others. And
7: Karen? I think they need to um, focus more on the fact that, and I'm just talking about one disease, which is dementia or Alzheimer's that it, You can get it early. You can get it at 30. You can get it at 40. It's going to affect a lot of families and they're going to be in a sandwich generation predicament where they're going to be looking after their own children and looking after maybe their spouse or a a parent. And there's no supports for that uh, demographic. So. I don't know, and I can't believe, like, this is still happening. Like, this was in 2000 that my mom was diagnosed. In 2019, we're no further ahead Mm. with any supports. Girlfriend of mine as well, her parent just got uh, diagnosed. And they don't even, from diagnosis, there's nothing, like, a, a cheat sheet maybe. Okay, you should, these are all your supports. This is what you should do. People call me to ask, well, what do I do? And I, I can't believe this is still going on. It's, it's almost two decades now.
1: Caregivers Karen Leed and Salamenta, along with CARP's Chief Policy Officer, Marissa Lennox. You can add your voice by using the hashtag creditforcaregivers and find out more information at carp.ca. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Older Canadian voters were a focus for Justin Trudeau on Wednesday when he announced a 10% increase to old age security for people 75 and older, along with a 25% increase in the Canada Pension Plan survivor benefit for widows and widowers over 65. But on Tuesday, very little had been said about issues affecting Canadian seniors. Joining Libby for our Tuesday strategy panel, and remember this was before Trudeau's brownface and blackface scandal erupted, Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, former City Councilor and current CEO of Variety Village. Topic one was the People's Party leader, Maxime Bernier.
3: If we had the Green Party on there, then we would had to have Maxine on, Maxime on there, and he has candidates that are nominated. So I think that we did come up with some criteria, which with we thought that it was legitimate that he be on there, whether we agreed or disagreed with what he was saying.
8: I think that there was a certain sense that, you know, if, if the Greens are going to be on there, and, and and quite frankly, the Green actually has two legitimate MPs who are elected as Green members, whereas Maxime was elected as a conservative, who right. switched to this People Part, People's Party of Canada, but I think where the Conservatives are having a problem, um, as well as some of the other parties, NDP as well. Jack Mead has made a, a comment about the fact that he doesn't want Maxime to speak because of his divisiveness and his anti-immigration stances uh, and so forth. Whereas the Conservatives are more are concerned about that, but more so the process. You know, in other words, he was originally told by the Commission that he can't vote; he's not allowed because he didn't meet a number of the criteria. Yeah. Nonetheless, I think that it was more the process that the Conservatives were were not pleased with.
4: Let us not forget that Maxime Bernier uh, came within a hair of becoming leader <laughs> yeah, of the Federal uh, Conservative exactly. Party. And frankly, I was a little bit surprised at Mr. Scheer and the Conservatives' Party reaction to uh, the announcement that Mr. Scheer would be allowed to participate. They were very quick to blame... Mr. Bernier,
6: uh,
4: I'm sorry, mister uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Bernier, Bernier Maxime. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was, was very surprised at the reaction, which was uh, to single out the Prime Minister, to single out the head of the Elections Commission... Uh, It it struck me as petulant, and frankly, it struck me as a campaign that might be a little bit worried.
8: I wouldn't say worried. I, th- I think that you know um, it was again. It was just more the fact that conservatives always have to worry about you know um, uh, being treated you know wrongly or or other other influences happening. And I think in the case of of this commission having ECOS uh, being the pollster when when there was facts that the ECOS actually spoke very ill of the conservatives, um, I, I think where were a prob- was problematic. But again, it was it was the process by which they came to this conclusion. I think Maxime Bernier, as we've seen now, as has been. Stuck at one to two percent in the polls, uh, and that's basically reflective in a number of areas and and and, uh, and uh, ridings as opposed to it being sort of national wide. So whether or not he elects himself or one or two other candidates is yet to be seen. Um, but nonetheless, at least we've we've got now we've Whoa. we've got now. Um, that's Maxime calling me Whoa. to say, "Are you?" Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
3: Very quickly, what should we look for until we meet again next Tuesday, Charles? Very
4: quickly, uh, Where the leaders are going. That's always a key indicator of what they're prioritizing, whether they're playing offense or defense. I think you saw a lot of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau playing offense last week, going into unheld ridings where the Liberals have a legitimate chance. Uh, lots of time spent in British Columbia, in Alberta, in Quebec. Um, before long, it'll be uh, Vote Rich Ontario. The Prime Minister has already been in Windsor. He was in Kitchener-Waterloo yesterday. And um, so I think we'll see more of the same.
3: Yeah, I, I think we still have yet to hear what is really capturing the nation in terms of what their concerns are. And right now, it just seems very noisy. It's a very noisy campaign where there's little bits and bops of policy announcements and issues. and But there's no real sense that anyone has captured the spirit of what this election is going to be about. And so uh, I think that that, if that happens, that will be a game changer for the election. If we continue to plod along, it probably will bode better for the Liberals.
8: Yeah, I think all of that. I think Charles and Karen are right. I think the other thing, too, is I think you see party leaders trying to define themselves more and trying to fit into their campaign slogans, their respective campaign slogans, over the next little bit in anticipation of the big three debates. Um, but see more policy announcements, hopefully less candidate vetting, hopefully that's all over with. And, and the, the candidates that have been exposed or have been exposed, and there's no more of that going on. Um, and, uh, and as, as Charles Puts, I think where the leaders are going to go in the next little bit are going to be because um, what they do early on in the campaign is reflective of the early pollings and the early showings that they've got.
1: John Capobianco, president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Strategy Group in Toronto. Their conversation on Tuesday... Before, the brown face and blackface scandal erupted for Justin Trudeau. You're listening to the best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Now to the issue of national security and charges laid by the RCMP against Cameron Ortiz, a senior operative at the force. He was director general of the RCMP's National Intelligence Coordination Center and an expert in China and the Far East. He's accused of committing multiple violations of the Security of Information Act and the Criminal Code. On Tuesday, Libby discussed the Developments with terrorism and security expert Ross McLean and Phil Gersky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants, and former strategic analyst at Csis.
9: It's surprising in the sense that he was a fairly senior RCMP official who's alleged to have involved in this behavior. Normally, when stories like this break, and I'm curious what your take on this, Ross. It tends to be sort of a low level, per- not low level, a lower level person, like an analyst or somebody who finds himself in a certain situation and ends up compromising information. But for someone at that level of seniority, that, that I certainly haven't heard of a lot in my career. And maybe that's the most surprising element of this. It's not necessarily what he disclosed, because of course we don't really know what he disclosed, but the fact that he was, uh, he was fairly senior ranks in the RCMP.
10: Ross? Well, it does tend to be more more mid- to senior level people that are involved uh, in breaches like this because they're the ones who've been around enough that people trust them enough uh that they don't check on them at the more mid levels. But certainly as Phil puts forward at the most senior level, uh it's very, very rare. Uh there's been some famous cases in the past, but you know, it's it's pretty rare for this one. And I think um I think the depth and the breadth of the exposure uh is certainly large, but we don't know what that is yet.
3: He was apparently one of the, if not the closest advisor to the former commissioner Bob Paulson, and he reached a very high rank as a civilian.
9: Yeah, that's an interesting part that I think that is also worth thinking about. So you know, look at Libby uh, CSIS in the RCMP. So where I used to work at the RCMP, they're very similar organizations in that you kind of got the insiders, who you are, you know, your intelligence officers with CSIS, your regular members of the RCMP, and you got everyone else. This is the civilians in the RCMP and the non-investigators with CSIS where I worked, so there it really was kind of a, a world of you know the us and them. And for someone from the outside, if I can use that term, to have risen so rapidly and so high in the organization is really interesting. And and I hate to say this, but you know it, it's gonna it's gonna feed this notion that we can only trust our own, which is not necessarily true. But you know you tend to you tend to, to close circles, close ranks when these things happen. And my fear is is that it's going to cast aspersions or doubts on other people within the RCMP who, you know, didn't come up through the rank and file, went to Depot in Regina, and then, you know, did their posting somewhere in Canada. That would be my fear at this point.
3: Is there any sense at all, Ross, of how he may have, you know, fallen through the cracks or why it took so long?
10: Yeah, they know exactly how, well, we know exactly how they caught him. There was a, a Canadian who ran a worldwide enterprise with uh, hacked uh, phones. I believe they're like Blackberry devices that he gutted. Uh, encrypted them and had them they'd work on the cellular networks or wi-fi and they'd only go through his servers and he sold them specifically apparently according to the allegations that been charged with um, for dealing with the criminal element and drug dealers and his uh, an rcmp document turned up on one of those servers uh, laptops when they were going through it and then the rcmp went from that to go find him so they know that that was at least one method that he was using to uh, perhaps offer these documents for sale or how he was brokering them. And as to what Phil was saying earlier, part of the problem when you're looking at guys like this is they know exactly what the, um, what the methods and strategies and tactics and technologies are that all of the five eyes and all the different agencies use for the most part. So they know exactly what not to use themselves if they're going to be doing something and they know more or less what works. So that's, that's part of the deal in prosecuting him, is going to be figuring out uh, what devices and what trails did he use. I, I think that the fact that they apparently found a lot of information at his residence when they did the warrant is going to tell a lot about the subject matter for what he was doing, but maybe not quite how he was dealing it.
3: Okay, uh, final question. Uh, is it a surprise that we were apparently tipped off by allies, didn't figure this out on our own?
9: I would say not, 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 not whatsoever. I mean, this is an alliance that's been around for the Second World War. We scratch their back, they scratch ours. We've had many cases where we've provided information to our allies that helped them in investigations. It goes vice versa. This is not a black spot on the RCMP for not finding out of first. This is why you have friends. In a perfect world, of course, we discover our own stuff. But, you know, this is the way investigations go. And this appears to be a trans-border investigation. So the fact that the FBI felt confident to tell the RCMP, hey, here's what we found, I think is great. It points to the trust of the, the two nations, security intelligence and law enforcement agencies have now. This is a good news story, not a bad news story.
1: Phil Gersky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and former strategic analyst at CSIS and terrorism and security expert Ross McLean. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto phoned to say too many election promises are being made by all of the leaders, and this feels disingenuous.
10: I am so upset with all of the giveaway promises that all of the parties are suggesting, that money just seems to be falling from the sky and, oh, we can afford this, we can afford that, and, oh, the wealthy are going to pay. there well, aren't enough wealthy to make it happen.
1: Ron in Guelph called with his opinion on the scandal that broke this past week. Images of Justin Trudeau in blackface and brownface.
2: Uh, one word I think describes this thing, and that's sanctimonious. If Trudeau hadn't have come out so many times and called Sheer a racist and called all these other people racist over the years, you know what, we might have been able to forgive this, but sanctimonious still comes to mind when I, when I think of it.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Marissa in Etobicoke, who feels forgiving Justin Trudeau and moving on is the best way to heal and go forward. All I want to say is that he's apologized. He is remorseful. I think his intentions were not malicious at all. He came forward, and he apologized, and his apology was genuine. My motto in life is always go forward and never turn back. We all have regrets in our life. Yes, it was inappropriate. Yes, he's apologized, and I don't believe that he is a racist. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.